Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation at UPMC. We are in our folklore era here at Breakpoints, and today we're going to reflect on how many of the things that we do in infectious diseases are because that's simply how we've always done them. And as the years go by, the root of that evidence to support our practices somewhat dissipates. It's kind of shocking when we go to dig into certain things, how little evidence we actually have to support guideline recommended care. So our guests today have both led teams down several rabbit holes that we will explore during this episode, and that resulted in two recent awesome publications. So the first was published in the American Journal of Medicine in July 2022, and it was titled Top Myths of Diagnosis and Management of Infectious Diseases in Hospital Medicine, and it was led by Dr. Melissa Johnson. Melissa is a professor of medicine at Duke University and a liaison clinical pharmacist for the Duke Antimicrobial Stewardship Outreach Network, or DASON. She also currently serves as the president of the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists. Melissa, like so many of our Breakpoints guests, has ties to Pittsburgh, uh, near and dear to my heart, of course, and so she's automatically an awesome human and welcome on the show anytime. Melissa, welcome to Breakpoints. Hi, Erin. Glad to be here today. Thank you. We're super excited to have you. And then our second speaker is Dr. Jason Gallagher, who is the senior author on the second publication we'll talk about in this episode. This was published in CID in June 2023, so very recently, and it was titled Antibiotic Myths for the Infectious Diseases Clinician. Jason is a professor at Temple University School of Pharmacy and a clinical pharmacy specialist in infectious diseases at Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's also the director of the PGY2 Residency in Infectious Diseases Pharmacy at Temple, a past president of the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists, so really just an all-star crew between you two, and currently serves as the editor-in-chief of Contagion Live. When Jason isn't endeavoring on bike rides of many, many, many miles, it's like really just you bike a lot, Jason, or sharing his life stories over old fashions, which is a favorite pastime of his, he's tweeting things that end up as thought-provoking publications, which we will talk about today. Jason also has Pittsburgh ties now that I think of it. So truly, what what a crew we have here today. Anyway, Jason, welcome to Breakpoints. Thank you. Glad to meet the Pittsburgh tie threshold, though I haven't been there in weeks. Yeah. You know, I knew MJ had Pittsburgh ties, but I really didn't think of yours, despite the fact that I just saw you when you were here <laughs> until I was writing these bios. So this is just this is all just just very exciting. But Jason, let's start with you and then we'll go back to Melissa. I want everyone on listening to the episode today to hear the story of the tweet heard around the world, if you will, or at least how this antibiotic myths manuscript came to be. So, thank you. So there was once this thing called Twitter. You, you may, <laughs> uh, may it rest in peace. R.I.P. Twitter. Um, I literally never thought that I'd say that on the podcast, like that Twitter is no longer in existence. It's a, it's, it's truly a sad thing. It, I have my own yeah. opinions about social media. I'll try not to go down, but Twitter I liked and Twitter I, I, I miss. Uh, so I actually have a funny story of how I got involved in Twitter. I won't make it too, too long. I, I started using it as a way, I attempted to use it as a way to quote unquote, engage the back channel of our classroom to get students who were too intimidated to raise their hand to send a message anonymously, thinking that, you know, 
tweeting something to potentially millions of people would be more anonymous, right? <laughs> so I, I started using it with that. The first tweet I got displayed on a large screen behind me as I was going to lecture was, if I bend over, will you tell me what this rash is? And that sort of crumbled my lecture. It didn't go, <laughs> it didn't go smoothly after that one. And I cut off the, the use from there. Oh but I did learn how to use it from, from that point. And eventually I sort of formed a network and went from there. And then I was at an SADP meeting later when Susan Davis asked me if I told them. <laughs> but anyway. Um, so In the interest of keeping breakpoints PG, perhaps let's talk about your myths tweet. Indeed. Sorry. So the, the tweet you're referring to, I, I keep a running list of paper ideas for trainees and so forth, you know, literally in my phone. And I had this one for years, myths and ID, and I had them broken down to basically think about writing about individually. Um, but to make myself actually write the damn paper, I tweeted out, this is my summer project. You know, what do you think the, the biggest myths and ID are? I listed, listed a few of the ones in my mind. And folks started replying and it got some attention. And uh, eventually uh, you guys reached out as well and sort of went from there. Yeah. So I think Melissa and I, at that time, when we saw your tweet, we both reached out and we were like, this is absolutely something we're interested in. But Melissa, you had already started down this journey, coincidentally, and saw Jason's tweet. And then I think saw some synergy between our groups. So can you explain to us in the background what your group had been working on and then how this all came together? Yeah, that's really funny about the timing of everything, because Back starting in 2015, I joined DASON and we do stewardship in community hospitals. And we had noticed kind of a recurring theme across many of our hospitals of repeating the same things over and over again to different groups of people. And we have five pharmacists working in various hospitals in a large 35 hospital network. And we compared notes and we're like, you know, we're just spending all day saying the same thing, dispelling these myths. And we meet with hospice groups, emergency department personnel, nurses, and we were repeating the same things over and over again. And we started to put them into a slide deck and we were giving annual presentations and quarterly presentations at our hospital based on these myths. And so we finally decided to go ahead and write that in a paper. And uh, I had reached out to Dan Sexton at the time saying, you know, like, we're going to do this. Schaefer Spires had joined our group. And then we all just pitched in and put this paper together on the top myths that we saw in our hospitals, really directed at the hospitalists and other clinicians in these community hospitals. That's awesome. And yeah, that's awesome. And it's a great paper. So again, for those of you who may or may not have read it, we have the reference in today's show notes, but it was published in the American Journal of Medicine in July 2022. And I think consistent with what your group does and the excellent work of, of working mostly in these community hospitals, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when you go to a lot of your hospitals, you a lot of them may not have robust stewardship programs at baseline, right? You come in and help them establish their data and establish their programs. So it's a lot of core foundational things with stewardship and just using antibiotics appropriately and really well, nicely targeted for a hospitalist audience. And so, Melissa, do you mind sharing with us what those myths are in your paper? Sure. So the first one is antibiotics do no harm. The second one is antibiotic durations of 7, 14, and 21 days are necessary. The third one is if one drug is good, two or more must be better. That's interesting. Did you? So were people using a ton of combination therapy for different things? When, a when, lot. And we actually had some reports that we could run where we, you could see that 
they were doing Zosin plus Flagyl all the time. Okay. And so it was simple things like that, that we could really make an impact on. Um, yeah. So that was like shocking to us. Uh, another one was oral antibiotics are not as good as IV antibiotics for hospitalized patients. It's a very common um, misconception that patients have to be on IV to justify a hospital admission. And we heard that over and over again. Uh, but we know that's not true. And then the fifth one is bacteria in the urine signifies a UTI and should be treated. And the related myth, cloudy or smelly urine, means a patient has a UTI. Classic. And this was something that we, you know, always seem to encounter and really needed to clean up our practices with urinary tract infections. Yeah. I, and we find that too. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. We actually, we find this come up time and time and time again, and our listeners have actually requested this topic frequently. So reading this excerpt in Melissa's paper is a great place to start. And then there'll be a whole breakpoints episode dedicated to UTIs or lack thereof in October. So stay tuned for that coming, coming out this year. And then our sixth one is a history of a penicillin allergy means a patient can never receive beta-lactam antibiotics. This is something we commonly saw in our facilities that really drove the use of alternative agents. And there's so much great data on how the use of alternative agents are inferior to the use of beta-lactams for many indications. So this was a great opportunity for us to help spread the word about that. And you've got lots of previous Breakpoints episodes on allergies and penicillin allergies as well. We have so many. And I think it's a nice, actually, something we're doing right now at UPMC is kind of tackling this myth with surgical prophylaxis in particular, which I think is your seventh one, right? Yep. So in the seventh one is antibiotics for surgical prophylaxis should typically be continued for at least 24 hours. And um, I think the HICPAC and CDC recommendations basically were just updated again regarding this, uh, trying to dissuade folks from continuing antibiotics for clean or clean contaminated surgeries outside of the OR. So you can stop them at wound closure. And that's really exciting. And we're trying to spread the word about that too. And then the eighth one is antibiotics are necessary if drains are in place. And this we saw as a common reason people would justify continuing antibiotics for just an indefinite period of time in our hospitals. And we really look at the length of therapy. And this is one of the things driving those uh, lengths of therapy that were too long. So if we could get people to stop earlier, uh, that was beneficial. Then the ninth one is nitroferentoin can be used for UTIs only if the creatinine clearance exceeds 60 mils per minute. And this was a great one to highlight that, no, there's emerging data about this and you can go down as low as 30 mils a minute. And people generally do well with their shorter courses of therapy with those short durations, uh, even if they have some degree of renal impairment. And then finally, fluoroquinolones are excellent first line options for common infections. And when we went into these hospitals, we saw fluoroquinolones used routinely for lots of indications and because it was just like an easy button. They just give that levofloxacin and send the patient on their way, maybe for another week or two on it, uh, without really appreciating all the side effects of fluoroquinolones. So we've done a great job, I think, raising awareness about that. We actually published some of our data showing that you know we were able to dramatically decrease fluoroquinolone uses in our facilities. Uh, and there's lots of good data showing you know the safety of those approaches. So that's awesome. Yeah, and in the paper, some of you may or may not have seen this is a really beautiful flowchart, which is, I guess, already a little outdated because I think there's been one other FDA warning since the publication. Um, but Travis Jones made a really nice figure of all the F of 
a timeline of the FDA warnings about fluoroquinolones, which I think has been shared widely. I know I've seen it show up in many a talk and conference presentation. So that's a really beautiful graphic in there. Um, it's, I'm actually smiling as I think about this, though, because just yesterday we had a patient who is a 61-year-old male who injects drugs, and he has Citrobacter and Enterobacter faecalis, Citrobacter coceri, so not an AMPC enter, Citrobacter, and then Enterococcus faecalis osteo. And he was going to have to go to a sniff for six weeks for Zosin, and we ended up discharging him on oral levofloxacin monotherapy and, you know, saved a month in healthcare of being in a facility of using orals. And so it's funny because I think that was what myth four that oral antibiotics can be used, but then it's like, but we're so, you know, fluoroquinolones are whenever we recommend them, uh, my ID attendings are like, you're recommending a fluoroquinolone. It's like, yeah, sometimes they're okay. Just not all the time and not for really common things. So I love it. Um, so Jason, what do you think of these myths is, do these hold true in your practice and in things that you see, and, you know, listening to Melissa going through that list is obviously those are important and commonly thought things, but actually, you know, hearing them again makes me think that we're, we are making headway at a bunch of these things, you know, like the oral antibiotics in particular, I feel like just in the last five years, there's been a, um, enough data to really nudge that along. Uh, that one issue of New England, fortunately, with both of those key uh, studies uh, coming out at the same time was a real plus. But um, the one that gets me the, the most, and I think everybody knows, or so many people know, is about UTIs and how poorly they are uh, diagnosed and how much they're overdiagnosed. And I'm sure we all learned the same thing in school, you know, about elderly patients presenting with altered mental status and, and magically they get so much better when they're rehydrated. Um, and it just blows my mind what proportion of antibiotics are used for UTIs that don't exist. And how much that sort of squeezes the balloon in our overall resistance issues. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think ASB continues to be the bane of our existence. And we we admittedly, at least in my hospitals, do not have a good infrastructure for tackling this, but it's top of all of our lists. Um, it's funny, right? Because it feels kind of boring. And I hate to say that, but it's a, you know it seems like a simple thing. And it's like, seems like we should have figured this out by now, but we haven't. And so if you're listening and you haven't figured out your ASB problem either, you're not alone. But I would agree. I think we've made really good progress. I, in reading that list and in prepping for this episode and rereading Melissa's paper and, and the Dayson Group's work, it's really, really, it's really beautifully done. Um, but I agree. I think we have made a lot of strides, at least in some places, right? And maybe if your community hospital hasn't made strides in all 10, maybe you've tackled one. And that's huge. Like changing that culture and shifting that mentality, even in one place, is really important. I think penicillin allergies for sure are recognizing that cephalosporins are often safe. And then I would say for us at UPMC, I would say culturally, the penicillin allergy thing, we've totally shifted to acceptance. And then surgical prophylaxis, I mean, we have orthosurgeons coming forward and saying, do I need to give antibiotics at all? Urologists saying, I don't need to give antibiotics at all for clean procedures. Uh, and so that that desire to do less is is coming through, which, which I love to see. Melissa, what do you think your group has made the most progress on across your hospitals? I thought about this a lot in preparation for the episode, and I think that really uh, the oral antibiotics are as good as IV for many indications was one that shined through. And some of this has been driven by what we're able to do for our facilities. So for our facilities, we um, scrape data and it's de-identified, but we're able to feed that back to them. And we actually have a report that we can give to them of the proportion of total antibiotics uh, 
of the proportion of oral antibiotics to total antibiotics for highly bioavailable agents. So we have targeted agents and we can report that back on a monthly basis and show them what proportion of oral are they using for these highly bioavailable antibiotics. So it gives them a target to shoot for. And so when we did this in some hospitals, we saw some were as low as 30% oral of these antibiotics and others were as high as 60%. And so we went to those hospitals and said, what are you doing differently than these other hospitals? And then shared that information. And then we've been able to see with attention that they can get it above 50% of oral antibiotics to the total for these highly bioavailable agents. And just, it's really exciting to see that kind of feedback loop where you can give them a target, energize them to go out and do this, and they're able to make active interventions in their patients. And this is all while we're bringing down overall use of antibiotics at their facility with attention. So it's really exciting to see that kind of progress occurring and just the uptake that we're getting from the clinicians. That's awesome. Nothing gets me more excited than seeing QI data come back. Like, I love it so much. Like I watch, we, <laughs> we just tackled surgical prophylaxis as I was talking about. And we used to have, you know, between 30 and 40% of patients with an allergy got first line antibiotics. And now it's more than 80% in our target pilot clinics. And it's just like, there's nothing more That's satisfying than a, than a graph. I, I, I love it. Um, okay. So before we're about to move into Jason's paper, so Jason, get ready, shift around, crack your neck, you know, get ready to talk. Uh, Melissa, though, before we transition out of your paper, I do want to talk a little bit about the successes because I know your group is so successful. And I think a lot of what our listeners value is hearing like, okay, I understand the data. I appreciate it. But how do you actually start to change culture? How do you actually implement some of these initiatives? So at a high level, can you speak to what you think are very successful operational things that you put in place or forcing functions or systems you help your hospitals build, you know, to actually go from 30% to 60% of using orals or what have you? I think a lot of this is engagement and also leadership commitment. So when you look at the core elements and the element of leadership commitment, a lot of us don't necessarily think about that on a day-to-day basis. But in our facilities, by having a member of the C-suite team in on your initiatives, it really lends support all the way through the organization from the top to the bottom. And so we've had folks work these goals into their quality goals for the hospital, have buy-in from the C-suite. They end up, you know, incentivizing certain groups. And then we meet and engage with key players like the hospitalists, the emergency department, the nursing teams, all throughout the facility to really get everyone on the same page regarding this. So that is part of the secret sauce, I guess, or one of the secrets to success I would say that we have. And it's really partnering with them. We tell them your goals are our goals. You know, we're not telling you you have to do any one of these certain things. We want to look at the data from that facility and let it guide us as far as what are the best things for them to work on and then partner with them together to make that happen. And I think it's maybe that strategy of more a partner that really gets folks engaged in this. And for us, durations has been another thing. And having reports, like I said, where we can show them what is your duration of therapy for these different indications, for these different wards, and get folks engaged in that regular data feedback and give them something actionable to act on, it really promotes sort of a culture of change within your organization. So if there's one thing that I could say that people can take away from it, it's that. is like, don't let your data just sit there on the shelf. Get it out to people. Share it promote it, get them engaged in it. And they'll feel then more ownership over the situation and act on it with you. Yeah. I love it. Let the data drive what you do. That's kind of our mantra too, which I think we learned from you. So I love it. And that's really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. All right, Jason, 
You ready? You excited to talk about the next Smith's paper? So we talked about how this paper came about. Um, so as Melissa's group was writing the hospital-based myths, Jason had kind of thrown this out into the Twitterverse. We responded. And what we started to do was uh, put all of our brains together. And we just listed out everything we could think of, of areas that, you know, we've heard someone say this as if it's truth and the be all end all. But either we don't know the source of that clinical pearl for what it is, or we have new data now to say, maybe that's not exactly correct anymore. And I think we listed what, like 30 different things. It was long. It was not an easy process to cut them back down. Yeah. And fortunately, reviewer two helped us cut it a little more, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, for those asking, so the paper has eight myths. We did submit it with 10. It just was too long. And one of our very sage reviewers said, well, maybe these two myths can go. So who knows? Maybe there'll be a part two paper at one, <laughs> one day containing some other myths. But we narrowed it down to these top 10 which became eight. Uh, and so we have we have eight myths to talk through today. And I think I want to go through them all and kind of talk through where did this come from? What's the history behind it? Why did we think this was true? What are the new data? And then what do we do about it? And what do we still know, right? Can we kind of do that? I, one of my favorite, um, when I was making notes for this episode, I thought one of my absolute favorite Peloton instructors, do either of you guys Peloton? No, Jason, no, you bike, you bike like in the real world. <laughs> yeah, which is terrifying to me. Okay, so I got a Peloton last year and I love it. And one of my favorite instructors always says this thing that first you get uncomfortable and then you get strong. I was like, this is science. <laughs> it is true of exercising when you don't want to and also of dispelling antibiotic myths. So let's go through them. Jason, what do you think? Should we just go in the order of the paper or should we talk about your favorite first and then go from there? Uh, I am fine either way. I guess I don't mind starting off the top with, with my favorite. And But I do want to highlight that both of you are also authors on this paper. So let's not call it my paper. You are, you are the first author, Dr. McCreary. Um, but yeah, my, my yeah but I host the podcast, so it's just a little <laughs> awkward, you know, but that's okay. That's right. I so, do love this paper, though. It was really do And what pushed that paper forward was you. So I, I think you deserve that. Um, but my favorite of them, I, I get to teach get, we'll, we'll say get, like have the opportunity to teach uh, pharmacology here as well as the clinical side. And um, it keeps me relating those two things back and forth uh, um, frequently. And I really like that uh, Bactrim or Septra, as they call it in the Southeast in California, it, uh, and group A strep and this myth that it is inactive, a myth that's gone so far that it's, there's no break point for it, you know, in the, in the States. Uh, that there is in, in Europe. And this is because of really a testing flaw. It's kind of amazing that it all comes back to that. Obviously not a new drug. Um, but since if you use a, a media that has plenty of thymidine in it, you basically restore the uh, what the drug is targeting the prevention of. So it's like, here it is, the stuff that we're giving you this drug to not be able to to make, here's some in your media, gobble it all, uh, all up group A strep. And that led to really the false impression of uh, resistance to Bactrim in, in group A strep. And that's really dogged it for forever. Um, now that's a known phenomenon now. And, you know, obviously we don't have the data to support its use in so many clinical infections that maybe we would have if, if this road hadn't been paved for it long ago. But I just think it's fascinating that things go that far back. Yeah, that's really interesting, Jason. Um, 
you know, I certainly during my training heard those those mantras. And there's also an older trial with pharyngitis with group A strep showing that, you know, penicillin was better than Ceftra for pharyngitis. And I think that also maybe drove some of the, you know, concern about this because it was just such a basic thing that if you can't show efficacy in group A strep pharyngitis, so, you know, how's it going to be better in more serious infections? Yeah, I mean, whatever Septra is, right? So, I mean, actually, <laughs> probably fine. You <laughs> know, Sulfa. <laughs> Melissa, it's so funny. After this paper came out, one of my attendings in pediatrics emailed me and said, I love your paper, but what do you think about the old ARF data with Bactrim and, and Strep? And I was like, I can't even get into ARF because, quite frankly, that's a whole nother myth and a whole nother discussion. There was an excellent ID Week debate on it. And so um, I think that those data are very old and it's not like, so I think those need re-explored for sure. And I don't think they used TMPSMX in that study. I think it was a different sulfa oral and that just got also got kind of extrapolated. And so, you know, caution there. The other thing, I love this one too. I'm glad you picked it first, Jason. The other thing I want to caution our listeners when we talk about this myth of trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole does not have in vitro activity against strep pyogenes, that being the myth and the truth being that it, it in fact does, and, and Jason went through the, the lab data on it, um, is that we're talking specifically clinically, though, about how this would then translate to skin and soft tissue infections. And so we walk nicely through. There's been a lot of studies, a lot of ED data, thanks to our ED colleagues. We love those collabs. Last month, we talked about ED stewardship on breakpoints. Um, but looking at abscesses, cellulitis, and essentially comparing you know Keflex to Bactrim, and what they were really getting at is what they, the question those studies were trying to answer was, do you need to double cover essentially staph and strep for abscesses, thinking that Bactrim had no activity against strep? What we found is that the patients that had huge areas of cellulitis, like we're talking like multiple iPhones, areas of cellulitis, if you look at the tables and you look at this, this is all streptococcal cellulitis. Patients were randomized to Bactrim only and did fine and got cured. So those are your clinical data, even though when you look at the trial, the trial wasn't designed to say, does Bactrim treat strep? But you can use those data to show that for skin and soft tissue, it seems just fine. Now, I think I speak for all three of us. None of us are giving IV trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole for neck fash and invasive strep pyogenes bacteremia. That is not what we meant to say with this. We're talking specifically about the lab data as the true myth core. And then TMP-SMX monotherapy is probably fine for cellulitis if they can't just get a beta-lactam. Like if you want to cover MRSA and strep, you can probably give one drug is is really what we mean to say here. Yeah. And I think that this is, I, I think it's good for us to point that out. I mean, we really have no idea how well it would or wouldn't work. We don't have the clinical data in that area, but it's almost coming around again and how relevant it is. Because at least in our institution, I would imagine out in uh, Pittsburgh also, group A strep bacteremia is like roaring, mm-hmm. you know, coming on very strongly, being pushed by the xylazine use in, um, in persons who inject drugs. So I could see, you know, someone thinking that if someone's on Bactrim for whatever reason, and then they see that, that it broke through because they were giving an inactive drug when maybe they have to look a little further for the source in the first place, um, that, you know, this myth is, quote, is relevant for that, in part for that reason. Yeah, you're exactly yeah. correct. We're seeing a ton of group A strep. It was like we saw RSV. <laughs> it's like COVID happened, then we got wrecked with RSV, and now it seems like the next pandemic is is group A strep bacteremia. So absolutely. Um, Melissa, what's your favorite myth? Which one do you want to talk about? 
I think maybe the first one of cefazolin for CNS infections oh. or CNS penetration. Yes. I, I think this Aaron one is dar- feels this one is darling. About I'll let you talk about it though. <laughs> but, well, I think that this myth has allowed us to really think through some of our algorithms, you know, that would might lead us towards uh, staphylococcal penicillin as opposed to cefazolin. And, you know, the concern there has been that, oh, cefazolin has poor CNS penetration, so you really shouldn't use it for, you know, your staphylococcal bacteremias and, you know, with MSSA specifically. And for us, you know, when when we looked at the data, they really just don't necessarily support that. And there's also some misunderstandings about what parameters might be most important to determine if a drug has activity in CNS infections. And so I guess the early data for this was driven by some case reports of single doses that were given that reported low CSF concentrations. But when you looked at longer durations of therapy where they were at steady state or you looked at brain tissue, you actually did have adequate concentrations of cefazolin. And so there's been a little bit more clinical data then to suggest that it might be able to be used in these infections. And that, I think, opens the door then to us to feel more comfortable using it in these cases of MSSA bacteremia as opposed to an anti-staphylococcal penicillin. And it might give us some opportunity for different dosing schemes um, that aren't as intense or as as frequent as anti-staphylococcal penicillins would require and facilitate outpatient therapy as well for certain patients. Yeah. I, I do love this one because I think it uh, teaches, I, one, I love ANSEF in general. And then two, I think it teaches us a lot. Sorry, I, I always say the brand names. One day they're going to revoke my hosting abilities because I use brand names. I'm sorry. Cefazolin. 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 Yes, my favorite. Okay. So I love this myth. One, because I do, I think it's a safe and effective drug, and I'm glad that we now feel a little more comfortable using it. I will say this is something that at least my providers have not totally jumped on board with. I think they've read it. I think they appreciate the discussion. I think we're having it more and more, especially in patients that are having some side effects to nafcillin or oxacillin. Um, but I, I wouldn't say this has been a wholesale switch at my institution, so it's okay if people are still hesitant. I also, we don't know the dose, right? So these case series use about like eight to 12 grams a day, sometimes continuous, sometimes intermittent, um, probably need more drug, but we don't, there's a lot to learn here, but I think it's nice that it's no longer a black and white cut and dry. Nope, can't do it because that never really made any sense. And so what I like about this myth is just that when you walk through the literature, you learn so many lessons. So first like case series of a handful of patients that say that they did bad or they did good, like should not be the be all end all either way, right? Because this case series using cephalothin, lothin, lothin, I don't even know. I'm really bad at pronouncing words too, guys. Um, But that essentially they were on a, a first generation early cephalosporin and they had breakthrough meningitis. And then we were like, oh, these don't get to the CNS. This is terrible. And it, we do that a lot with ID. We, we look at a case series and we want to feel really good about it. And we either say we use very low quality data to support doing something or to support not doing something. And I think that's a lesson in and of itself. And then my other favorite thing about this, and then we can move on, I promise, uh, is just what you were saying about CSF concentrations and not that may or may not be a good surrogate of brain tissue, which is like, seems simple, but is mind blowing and pun not intended and is so important to think about because this we see with echinocandin data as well. So echinocandins don't recover in the CSF when we test samples, 
But when you do autopsies of mice, there's high concentrations of echinocandins in meningeal tissue. So that's another one perhaps we should explore, right? And, and, and perhaps we don't know. And then just capturing CSF is so interesting in general. You're taking it from the lumbar spine. You're taking it from an EVD. And, and, and is that the right ratio and things like that? So I think there's a lot of lessons with this one, which, which I like. Yeah, including, I'll, I'll just add quickly, and I promise I'll make it quick, you know, how much generalization there is between generations of cephalosporins that really are not as chemically related as we pretend they are. You know, who cares what cephalothin does? What does that say about uh, cefazolin, which came later? You know, and it was developed uh, considerably later. Right. And um, that's just, you know, right. this is... If there was any way to teach cephalosporins other than generations, we'd be doing that <laughs> because there's just way too many of them. Well, we develop new drugs to make them better, right? So, yeah. so perhaps this drug didn't have a great distribution into certain tissues, and then you made a new cephalosporin to overcome said things. So I think that is an important lesson. I also think when you really dig into the whatever we use as a CSF penetration surrogate, when you look at those data for any beta-lactam, they're all atrocious. So to say you feel really good about ceftriaxone treating meningitis, but really bad about cefazolin seems odd since they both, I mean, from a what gets into the CSF, if that's even a thing, they're both pretty bad, which Vanco also is, mind you. And we use right. Vanco all the time. So it's just interesting when you compare those numbers, you're like, oh, Oh, buddy, that might not be so great. And often these studies don't even explain how they took these samples, right? And so it's just suboptimal. But yeah, I love that one. Okay, other ones I love? I'm going to go next. Can I go next? Sounds okay. good. Um, <laughs> so the other ones I love are the two related to linazolid. And I'm not trying to cheat and say two, but I do think they, they go hand in hand. So there's been a lot of literature in the last five years or so about linazolid. And I think it's because it went generic and we use the antibiotic more frequently. And, you know, someone asked me why we only quote used old antibiotics in this paper. And I, I got the email and I thought about it and I was like, oh, we did use, I guess, old, but because we've had experience with them and because you can dispel myths as you use them more and more. So it makes good sense. And so again, look out for when we write the next one in 10 years about all the myths around the BLBLIs and all the other new drugs. But um, so we have more clinical experience with linazolid, more work's been done in this space. And so the two myths related to linazolid are linazolid must be avoided in patients receiving SSRIs. And then linazolid does not need dose adjusted. So we'll tackle the SSRI one first. Serotonin syndrome is so exquisitely rare, even if you were on 17 interacting drugs. And so, you know, and, and we completely understand and appreciate why you have to be really conservative when drugs come to market. You want to warn people about rare but serious reactions, but essentially linazolids carried this warning from the FDA saying you cannot use it with other serotonergic agents. You're going to cause serotonin syndrome and everyone is going to walk around with a really fast heart rate and sweating and it's just going to be terrible. And we have wholesale avoided linazolid in patients on any kind of serotonergic agent for as long as I can remember. I was taught this in pharmacy school for sure. People were very leery in clinical practice and you thought patients were just going to like spontaneously burst if you gave them two serotonergic agents. Meanwhile, in the bed next to this patient that you won't treat with a good antibiotic, you'd have a patient with some kind of mental disability or some kind of seizure disorder or some kind of any kind of disorder. 
and they would be on five concomitant serotonergic agents as a very appropriately prescribed regimen for their multiple health conditions. And no one thought anything of it. So essentially, a lot of smart people were like, this is weird. Let's look at this. And we cite several meta-analyses or large database studies, both from United States and international data. There's a really beautiful study from Canada. And they essentially just say, listen, people ended up getting linazolid and serotonergic drugs, whether intentionally because they had no other option or an oopsie, and no one died and no one gets serotonin syndrome. And this is probably fine. And so this is a hill I die on. This is something that's absolutely changed my practice. This is something I talk about all the time. I have like a preformed email saved with all these papers attached and my little two cents on why you can concomitantly give linazolid. I like fall on the sword, you know, because then doctors like, I don't want the responsibility if I get sued. I'm like, you can sue me. It's fine. Um, And so this is definitely one that I feel pretty strongly about. Jason, you're smiling at me. I like everything you said. I think the problem with this is it's hard to prove the absence of something, right? Especially the absence of something that's rare. And uh, I understand the caution of physicians about this because there it is in the package insert. And what's there is kind of ridiculous, but things lean on, you know, conservative, uh, you know what I mean, in terms of safe for safety from a safety standpoint. So I understand that. And I think that, you know, the docs who are afraid to prescribe it have to uh, well, it's, one, it's important for them to know the data and two, to, to walk towards it when needed as a necessary therapy. You're not just giving it away a right to no one. You're giving it to patients who require that. And I think as long as you document that risk benefit, you know what I mean? You're, you're pretty safe in the absolute rare event that anything were to occur because, you know, spontaneous things happen all the time. And, you know, there's risk benefit equations being done whenever a, a therapeutic is prescribed. Right. Um, it, it's it's a shame. It's been it's a great drug that's been you know underutilized, and this is a huge part of the reason. Yeah. I, it, as a pharmacist, I'm sorry, Aaron. No, I, I feel like I'm in the odd situation where when we go to use it, I have to both spontaneous or simultaneously say, "I think we should give this personal nasalid." They're on this drug that kind of sort of might maybe interact with it, but we should do it anyway. Just wanted to let you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's an excellent point you made, Jason, and I do want to underscore that I'm, I appreciate and recognize and acknowledge that a patient might get serotonin syndrome. I'm not saying serotonin syndrome never happens. It does. It's just exceedingly rare. And if it does happen, it's very serious and should be taken seriously. But patients can usually know signs and symptoms of it and know how to present and how to treat serotonin syndrome. So it's something we can counsel extensively on. I think the gross avoidance of a good drug, because all the other things we talked about earlier with Melissa's paper, linazolid is highly bioavailable. It has a nice spectrum of gram-positive activity. It's an awesome oral option. Think of all the patients we sent on IV therapies, IV Vanco, and ended up with kidney injury or whatnot. Think of the harms caused by trying to avoid a harm, right? And so there's always this risk-benefit. We don't want anyone to have a rare, serious reaction, of course, but I think sometimes in medicine, we're so cautious to avoid these rare, serious things. We don't really ever quantify the harm we cause in the, in the common things being common space, which is true. What we've been teaching about beta lactam allergies, you know, you didn't want to give a cephalosporin to a patient with a penicillin allergy because you were afraid they'd have anaphylaxis, very rare, very serious. So you just gave them Clinda and you caused 
common C. diff, right? And so that's that risk benefit equation. And that's why, that's why I like this one. Yeah. I mean, based on the available data, the, the risk of serotonin syndrome here is less than 1%, basically, on the basis of these reports. And so you really have to think about that yeah. and maybe take the plunge and monitor yeah. the patients appropriately. And, yeah. you know, it, and, and we'll see. But yeah. it, it's certainly not as high as some people would think. Yeah. And sometimes it's like 0.05%. Yeah. Um, okay. The other one with linazolid, I think linazolid is my favorite, anim- one of my favorite antibiotics, definitely top five antibiotics. I so, antibiotic. Yeah, I really like it. Um, so my other, the other myth I like with linazolid, and the reason I like this one is because I'm also a big fan of Ryan Krass, who's a pharmacist in Michigan who does really exceptional work. And I saw Ryan give a talk at ECMID in 2018 or 2019. This was like his research project and it was an oral poster that got accepted. And I remember seeing him give this talk and being like, wow, he's going to change the world, which is like a cool feeling when you see one of your friends do that. And then sure enough, these data ended up getting published in AAC and now really have changed how we think about using this drug. And again, it's it's letting us use a drug that we used to just be like, oh, can't do it. Now, what do I do now if patients got thrombocytopenia while on linazolid? And now it's like, well, maybe perhaps I can mitigate this thrombocytopenia with some monitoring and dose adjustment in a drug we traditionally thought wasn't dose adjusted. So the myth is linazolid doesn't require renal dose adjustment. What Ryan, Amit Pai, and a few of his other colleagues found is that there's active metabolites of linazolid and those accumulate in renal dysfunction. Again, so this, I like this myth because this isn't like a, oh, we misinterpreted old data. This is a, we didn't know and science is cool. And when people do good science, we learn things and then we can change practice. Um, And so they discovered these metabolites that do accumulate in renal dysfunction. When they accumulate, they're more likely to cause thrombocytopenia. And so there is a relationship between renal dysfunction and likelihood of thrombocytopenia. And so perhaps if you have a patient with renal insufficiency, you could do therapeutic drug monitoring. We have a really good breakpoints episode on linazolid TDM and linazolid dosing. Um, If you wanna learn deeply into more about that, Um, and perhaps you could just dose adjust the linazolid to half the dose per se or less dose daily, than just wholesale switching the patient off the drug. And I've done this a few times in my practice now since I learned this, patients with transplants that have persistent VRE bacteremia and they have no other options and they need to stay on linazolid. We've, you know, changed them to 300 twice a day or 300 daily even with drug monitoring. And uh, this is just really cool to me. So we walk, we walk through this one. Yeah, Aaron, there was another study in China just in 2022 showing that it's worse among the patients with renal dysfunction and even worse yet among those with low body weight and renal dysfunction. So that's kind of interesting to explore as well. And another group in which we might think about lowering the doses and monitoring. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for pointing that out, Melissa. Um, okay. So we all said our favorites. Let's switch it up. Cause I don't want people to think the one we talk about last is like not important to us because they're all important to us. So let's just go through the rest in order then. So the next one that we haven't talked about would be clindamycin is a first line drug for prevention of surgical site infections in patients with reported allergies. So we talked about allergies with Melissa's paper in general, the whole premise of perhaps we can challenge this. This is specific to surgical procedures and clindamycin. Again, this paper tried to focus more on antibiotic use and uh, I think this one's really important. Melissa, do you want to share the high the high view on this? 
Yeah, so this is one that we see over and over again in our hospitals. Um, we know penicillin allergy just drives overuse of these alternative agents. And it's something that I spend a lot of time with my folks on looking at their surgical prophylaxis guidelines. And I'm shocked sometimes that Clinda is there alone for so many things. And that leaves then the door open to gram-negative infections when we're just using Clinda alone for those. And it depends on, obviously, the site of the surgery where it's going to happen. But time and time again, in some of these other studies, when you just use Clinda or Vank alone as alternatives in a patient with, you know, beta-lactam allergy, they end up getting a gram-negative surgical site infection. And so it's important for us to remember that. And so if we can use those first-line agents, like cefazolin in these cases, you'll probably have better surgical outcomes. Um, there was just another paper published on this by Mandy Norville and colleagues, including Megan Jeffries, one of our great SIDP members. And again, it was cefazolin versus the alternatives of Clinda or Vanco in these surgical site infection prophylaxis patients. And there was, again, a higher rate of surgical site infections, 3.8% in them versus the penicillin or beta-lactam um, infections, which were 0.9%. So again, it's just important that we have this, you know, compelling information leading us to use cefazolin whenever possible for a surgical site infection prophylaxis. Yeah, Megan coined the best catchphrase ever of ANSEF, ANSEF for all, which is which is true. I think for me, this, I like this one because I learned a couple of things when digging into this first, and this is what sparked the whole beta-lactam allergy exploration. But the fact that cefazolin doesn't share a side chain with any other beta-lactam is the coolest fact ever to keep repeating. And I've been on an educational campaign at UPMC this, this summer going to all of our CRNAs, anesthesiologists, and surgeons show, showing them this. And I have a slide in there with the med chem, like with a penicillin structure and a cephalosporin structure. And I show them what a beta-lactam ring is. And I show them what a side chain is. Like everyone I prepped this talk with was like, take all that out. Surgeons don't care. You're going to lose your audience. And I was like, I have to leave it in. Like, this is it. This is why it's true. And you have to understand the why. So I left it in and they love it. Right. They're like, oh, I get it. And it's, and they're like, okay, I can give ANSEF to everyone. Cool. And it's been really effective. The other thing, again, in talking about like and we talked about this with the Linase lid, but we avoid things because we want to do no harm. But um, my favorite sentence in this paper from OFID is that there were more hypersensitivity reactions in the Vanco-Clinda group than in the Cefazolin group. And so you're avoiding the drug because of their allergy history, but Vanco causes a lot of hypersensitivity and histamine release infusion reactions. And so the thing you're trying to avoid is happening more by giving the worst antibiotics. So I thought that was, that was super fascinating. Clinda's awful. It's not, not my favorite. And I, I, Should I, that be the I, episode title? Just like, <laughs> Clinda is awful featuring Jason Gallagher. Yeah. yeah. There's Callistin, then there's Clinda. <laughs> and then there's the dumpster fire gif yeah. gif. I mean, Clinda is one of those things that's been, you couldn't make a weirder spectrum of activity, right? Like here you are against some of the strep and, you know, staff, and then these anaerobes, but not the anaerobes you really want to kill frequently because of resistance. It's like just enough against anaerobes to be irritating. And yeah. you know, I'm always impressed whenever a paper can show a difference between, especially something that's as relatively uncommon as surgical site infections that are appropriately prophylaxed against, right? right? I mean, because you're always giving active therapies, it's hard to show a difference between an A plus drug and an A minus drug, or in this case, I guess a C minus drug with, <laughs> with Clinda. Yeah. So, and it's I, astounding because the resistance, dying. sorry, the resistance yeah. to Clinda 
is so much greater with Staph aureus and anaerobes than it was, you know, way back when I was coming through training. So it's a good thing to remind many of the older clinicians in the crowd. It is not as active as it once was. Yeah. And in group B strep. And in strep. Yeah. I was going to say, I, what shocked, as I learned this over the last couple of years, every paper, I'm shocked at the resistance in strep to Clinda. Shocked. And it, and that, cause I just, I don't know. Strep seems really easy to kill. It's like a wimpy bug that actually makes you super sick. It's what a paradox. But the the resistance in strep and clinda is, is astonishing. Greater than 40% in some strep species in some parts of the United States um, and mm-hmm. more so globally. So that is also a take home from that one for sure. Should we talk about UTIs? Our favorite, our favorite thing to yeah. talk about. Uh, Jason, do you want to talk to us about phosphomycin and whether or not it actually works? <laughs> Phosphomycin maybe is a C if clindamycin's a C minus, or maybe it's lower. I don't know. Uh, let's not talk about IV phosphomycin, right? But um, phosphomycin is one of the great disappointments, right? I mean, it would be so nice if it worked, but it does not seem to. It was inferior to nitrofurantoin compared head to head for for UTIs, and of course, you know, who knows what would happen if it was repeatedly dosed in those studies and so forth. But it's one of those uh, flash in the pans that what it looks like in vitro doesn't seem to translate uh, in vivo. And just, I think, a, a, a big disappointment because, wow, would it be useful? Yeah. And it's not cheap either. I think people should should keep that in mind that, you know, just because you're writing it as a, a couple dose oral therapy, uh, that patient may have a hard time affording it. Yeah, phospho packets are expensive. This was a CSI in our EDs to switch from phospho to nitrofurantoin. We did that years ago, like for the cost. I'll admit it. Like we did it for the cost. Um, and, you know, that was when we were realizing we could use nitrofurantoin down to 30. So we're like, okay, we'll, we'll go from phospho to nitro as a cost savings. Um, but now we know that phospho might not actually work at all. So that was that was a good move. Um, my favorite part of this one is that um, some data out of the, a Chicago group showing that um, phosphomycin requires G6P to exert its killing effect, and there's no G6P in human urine. And so these were also data presented at ECMID, also an SIDP member, and it was like so cool to watch them present these data. And they looked at in vitro testing in MICs, and they said, you know, there's no kill in human urine. The MICs are like greater than 256 for all these pathogens. Uh, because it's missing this crucial enzyme and that's the site of action. So that's also kind of, kind of mind blowing. So phosphomycin, we want it to be awesome for cystitis, but it's probably not. So really, yeah, I really only bust it out if I have an ESBL E. coli and then it's like, okay, I'd rather do this than erdipenum and we make it work. With a patient who's already getting better or gotten better. Right. With it's, here you go. Goodbye. Actually, I'm glad you said that. I, affectionately say phosphomycin is my favorite asymptomatic bacteria drug. Nice. Because it is. It's the best one. If someone insists on treating, give them phospho. (laughs) Yeah. And just a reminder, we don't have IV phosphomycin here in the U.S. We're specifically talking about oral phosphomycin for cystitis that might be a one-time dose in in the U.S. Yes. Thank you, Melissa. Um, Okay. Other oral drugs. Let's round out. So doxycycline. Tetracyclines are awesome. Doxy is probably one of my favorite drugs too. And the myth we have in here is doxycycline is contraindicated in pregnancy and in pediatric patients less than eight. Truth, it's probably okay to use in most cases. In fact, maybe preferred um, for certain infections. So Melissa, do you want to highlight this one for us? Well, maybe the best way to open this one is that I actually have a child that got doxycycline as a child. (laughs) 
I didn't even know that. And there, I chose you. Jason has kids too. Like, that could have gone either way. <laughs> <laughs> there was a tick bite. And since we are in the heart of Rocky Mountain spotted fever country, uh, I elected to go ahead and let her get doxycycline. And she is just fine. She has beautiful teeth. I was going to say, I, I should include a picture of the North teeth. Carolina. Perfect <laughs> teeth. Yes. Okay. So this is, we talked about this with the cephalosporins I cannot pronounce. I can pronounce tetracycline. So I'll talk about this one. So, you know, different drugs in a class are not the same. And in fact, we develop new drugs to make them better. So OG tetracycline, super reactive. It's where you get all the sun poisoning from the chem. I love med chem. Can you guys tell the chemical structure of tetracycline is a very reactive molecule. It bound calcium like no other. And that is where you got the teeth staining and all of the photosensitivity, et cetera. As you go up the tetracyclines, they improve. They're more stable structures. It enhances their spectrum of in vitro killing for bacteria and also lessens their side effects. So these little manipulations change that. So they do still bind. You don't want to take your doxycycline with your cereal and whatnot, but that calcium binding is so much less potent than tetracycline. And that's where that teeth staining thing comes in. And so we just don't see it with doxy and minnow the way we did with the original tetracycline and therefore they're safe. And what, again, risk benefit, what's not safe is dying of Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So tick-borne illnesses are no joke. And really, tetracycline, doxycycline should be first line for these, even in young children, if you're weighing the risk-reward. Fun fact, my mom's side of the family is from East Lyme, Connecticut. <laughs> no way. Yeah, except the capital of Lyme disease is actually Pennsylvania, New Jersey. So we're, we moved a little little bit south. If you want, sadly, if you sadly, disease is spreading due to warming so yeah if you want some ticks come to pennsylvania we got them in spades i brush my dog once a week for, for yeah, i think the other thing to point out about that myth is to completely avoid a, a drug that you're treating for a short duration you know what i mean like teeth staining is going to take time it's not like you're going to take a dose and boom your teeth are blue the next day you know we're, we're for these uh, tick-borne diseases you're talking about a i hate this term but a course of therapy of you know several days to a, a week or so at the most yeah. Generally. No, that's a good point. That's important. And then the other piece of this puzzle is the pregnancy piece. And there's less data in that. I think there's actually a good bit of data looking at giving doxy to kids less than eight now and showing that they do have worse outcomes if they don't get doxy in terms of these tick-borne illnesses. Pregnancy, um, the FDA put out a statement that we do cite in the article. It essentially says there's no controlled studies of doxycycline use in pregnant women to show safety, um, but there's been an expert review panel that essentially says there's insufficient data to say there's no risk of it, but that there's probably not a lot of risk. And we did one of the, the one of the best things about this paper is we got a ton of awesome emails after. So if you're thinking of emailing us, go ahead and do so. It makes our day. We like talking about it. But someone emailed us, and the WHO is actually going to explore this mm. and, and the recommendations for doxy and, and pregnancy. So we look forward to to more more data in this space. And that's another key point in this is we don't have like nail in the coffin, be all end all answers for a lot of these, but we more wanted to showcase that what we think to be total truth might not be the whole story. And we have a lot more to explore. So the pregnancy one here is one where it's probably not an absolute avoid, but we have more to explore on how long you can get it, doses, things like that. And we have come to the last myth, which Jason, I know is a favorite of yours. So it is, it is a favorite. I cannot stand it. That is the, the need for rifampin and gent, uh, in prosthetic valve endocarditis. And this is incredible. Incidentally, another Twitter based, um, collaboration, uh, this came from 
a review or not a review article, excuse me, meta analysis about this came from people tweeting about it, and then someone reached out, and I hopped aboard that one. Um, that the data behind this is. I, I don't know what to say other than pitiful. We found all of four papers and two of them look like they use the exact same patient population in both studies. Uh, can't say for sure because we can't you know, query that, but uh, just really no basis for this at all. And uh, if there's one of these to actually impact the, my practice, it, it has been this one because looking at just how bad that data is, these are two drugs that are not without harm, right? Like rifampin generally well tolerated, but the drug interaction things are real. And um, I often think about the folks that we have that have prosthetic valve endocarditis are often patients who inject drugs and putting them on rifampin and then discharging them really makes me nervous about what enzymes get induced and whatever they're utilizing out there and how well it's metabolized or, or not. And then they stop rifampin and, you know, could potentially overdose. And obviously we all know that Gen is not the world's safest drug. So this one really, this is a practice that needs to go away. And hopefully the next iteration of these guidelines will not have this recommendation anymore, which is not based in data. I love it. Wholeheartedly agree. We have an endovascular consult team here and we rarely use rifampin and gent now, which is great because we also like had no idea how to dose gent. That was so made up. Like no <laughs> one could tolerate the mig per kid Q8. So then the guidelines were like, just give three daily with no reference. And that's always driven me, driven me wild. So I love this one too. We don't use it. We definitely never use gentamicin anymore. Some people will still add the rifampin. That's been harder to let go of, but yeah, all in all, good, good riddance. And with that, I think we have come Breakpoints faithful to the I feel nerdy section, unless you guys have anything left to comment on our eight myths that we went through. I think our next segment should be, we want to test the myth of the flagyl plus alcohol causing a disulfiram-like oh. reaction. <laughs> and we're all going to take a tablet with a glass. Yes, we should. We should enroll in that And study. just all that myth ourselves, because that's another one we probably didn't mention here, but probably needing to be debunked as well. We need a we need a trial, and any any volunteers can can message us after the show. I'll do the placebo group for that one. I hear that metronidazole is pretty disgusting. I mean, from a friend of mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, let's get into I feel nerdy. So the I feel nerdy segment of the podcast is meant to be a safe space and a closing segment for the panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, or fun facts. So today's I Feel Nerdy is not my most creative, but whatever, we got to talk all through creative things in our myths. And I want to just talk straight facts to end out this episode, so nothing fancy. I want you guys to tell me what myth had the greatest impact on your practice. Well, I feel like I already gave mine away. It, it is without a doubt the uh, rifampin uh, gent use and prosthetic uh, staph endocarditis, just because I see so many of those patients. And the deep dive into that one was truly helpful to get other folks on board that this is a practice that we should not be doing. I love it. Melissa? I think for me, it's the cefazolin and the CNS. I mean, I grew up in the era where you, that would, that's heresy. You would never even <laughs> speak that word. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's made me feel more comfortable in certain situations when it needs to be an option for certain kinds of patients and that it's, you know, not completely contraindicated that it would be an option. And it's it's just good to know for MSSA bacteremia that you can pull it from the shelf if you need to. And it's helped me, I think, revise some protocols and algorithms that we have in our facilities and offer that up as an option for certain patients. 
I think that one is useful if you don't mind my adding on and as much from the standpoint of that you're not doing something wrong when you're treating bacteremia you know what i mean like you're, you're not right. leaving this big hole in the cns if you aren't confident using it for a cns infection totally get that but you're also not you know putting someone at risk or ignoring a, a possible place where a staff might have metastasized too um, right and that's treat. really what I'm what I'm getting at there is yeah. I, I want to be able to use it up front if I need to. And, and that gives me more comfort to do that. That's a great point. I actually hadn't thought about it like that even in writing this paper. So thank you guys for sharing that. And thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure. I loved walking through this and reliving this two-year writing journey again with you guys. I do want to tell our audience, this took us two years to do. So if you guys are reading this and are like, oh, this cute little paper they wrote, you know, we too sit on things for many years before they get published. So you're not alone. Um, also forgot to mention this in the beginning, but if you do pull the antibiotic myths for the infectious diseases clinician paper, if it if you pulled it when it was first online, the references, half of them were in a supplement due to some formatting things. We worked that out. Thank you, CID team, for fixing this. So the PDF online now has all the references listed in the main text. There is no supplement. So sorry about that confusion. I got a lot of emails about that as well. And with that, thank you so much for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. This episode today was hosted by Aaron McCreary and featured guests Dr. Melissa Johnson and Dr. Jason Gallagher. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, Aaron McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by Drs. Jillian Hayes and Jeanette Bouchard. It was peer-reviewed by Drs. Audrey Hawkins and Sonal Patel and edited by Kara Slayton. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Dr. Kate Desir. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Dr. Steve Smoke, and you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.